Welcome to Rework, a podcast by 37 Signals about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner, and as always, I'm joined by the co-founders of 37 Signals and the authors of Rework. Jason Freed, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Wonderful. And David Heinemeyer Hansen, how are you? Good, good, Sean. Fantastic. Uh, This week, we're talking about selling your byproducts. And I think maybe to start off, can you give us a refresher of how 37 Signals, a small web design firm, started selling project management software? Well, the recap is that we built it for ourselves initially. We didn't intend to build a product for others, really. We were really busy, needed a better way to manage the work that we were doing. We were shooting emails back and forth, actually using AIM, AOL Instant Messenger, to to talk. (laughs) And, you know, it's fine for a minute. And then you lose track of things, especially as you get more work at the same time. So we built our own. Actually, the initial initial early version of Basecamp was a manually updated blog. (laughs) And then we eventually automated the whole thing and... uh, and went from there. But yeah, and then it became something that was a product that other people could use and turned it into into one of those and put a price on it and put it on the market and sort of crossed our fingers, not really knowing what was going to happen, but had a good feel for it. And about a year and a half later or so, it was doing more business for us than web design. So we stopped doing web design. When did you decide, like, what was that transition? When did you decide to start selling the thing? What was the tipping point, I suppose? Well, I think it was, it was pretty Early, we had a sense that we were onto something. You know, we can't be that unique. There's other companies like us who probably need the <laughs> same thing and are struggling with the same stuff. But I don't know. We didn't really think about the commercial aspect of it too early, but we, on day one, it was for sale. You know, it wasn't something we gave away for free for a year and then decided to sell later. Like the moment it came out, we had three prices on it and a free basically freemium, freemium model, free trial kind of thing, limited use sort of setup. Uh, so that was that was baked in from the start, but it wasn't the first thing we started to do. And so you start selling project management software and you stop the the web design business. What was the the next spinoff? What was the next byproduct? I think the first thing actually right after was we launched straight into doing workshops. The building of Basecamp workshop I believe maybe even the first one we did before we'd gone full time. I'm trying to fully remember, but we just thought that that experience of launching Basecamp, which was launched at a time where SaaS was not a term, like that didn't even exist yet. That wasn't coined until quite a few years later. The general way people distributed and sold software was they put it on a CD and they send it out to folks. I mean, not that there weren't other packages of software you could download over the internet, but this idea that it was a service running on someone else's computer was a novel concept. And we thought that the experiences we'd gone through building this SaaS business before it was SaaS was something that seemed so good, so obvious in so many ways that like this has to be the future. And if this is going to be the future, we've uh, been amongst the pioneers here. Can we perhaps help inspire someone else to do it? And also, there was a lot of attention around it uh, online. I mean, we had the Signal versus Noise blog, and lots of people were interested in it. What are you doing? What is this thing? So it just seemed like there was a market, mm-hmm. right? Like we thought in the beginning of that, like, do you know what? Could we sell it? whatever, 40 seats at a thousand bucks. I think it was a thousand bucks for like a whole day, eight hour thing. We're like, if we can do that, that's like 40 grand. Again, you got to remember the time here. Like 
this is what late 2004 early 2005 basecamp is not like pumping out millions here right right like we're we're hustling in the <laughs> sense of the word not uh, sort of using up all the hours but trying to find the business where it is yeah is there a good buck here that can be made selling something useful that's a, a byproduct of what we've been doing so the workshop really was the first uh, the first thing although that's not technically true there was actually another book before we started writing books together that I suppose was done even before it was a product business, which was Defensive Design, which came out in 2002, three, something like that, um, which was sort of also a byproduct book of uh, of web design, of the business before the software business that like, hey, there's a bunch of people designing things for the internet. They're not really thinking about the stuff that could go wrong. Uh, here's a book about that. I mean, the business 37 Signals was already a bit in the swing of this, is a bit in the swing of the hustle of finding these other ways to, I was just about to say monetize, but I hate that word with a serious <laughs> passion, so I'm not going to use it, um, sell other things to the business. And I thought that was just a sort of a fun start that really actually then version two or version three became the books. So much of what was written in Getting Real were extracted from the workshop series, building Basecamp. Yeah, I think the byproducts concept is not necessarily, it's not releasing additional products necessarily. Although like Tada List was sort of a byproduct of Basecamp. Sure. What was Tada List real quick? Tada List is just like a, a dead simple to-do list. Uh, it was the, the to-do list that was in Basecamp, right? Essentially, and then kind of simplified even more and, and, and whatnot. But but yeah, I think the building a base camp workshop is a great example and getting real that book and some of the other things. Those are real, the real byproducts. They are sort of the remnants of doing other work and you sort of can package that together and there's value in that. That's sort of the thing, right? Like yeah. you're already doing that work. So why not sell it? You've already done it. I think that the key is, is to look and see what, what the byproducts are, right? You can chop down a bunch of trees and you've got sawdust. Now sawdust used to be just junk that no one cared about, but then someone realized like sawdust could be used for, you know, pet bedding or all these things and we can reassemble it into particle board. And it's that whenever you make one thing, you're always making something else, mm -hmm. at least one more thing and paying attention to that and being aware of it and going, ah, there's something here. Now, sometimes it's just literally junk. There may not be anything you can do with it, but there is always something that you're making at the same time. And sometimes that's particularly valuable in the case of the building of Basecamp workshops, it was simply our experience. So we weren't making a physical thing. We were learning something, which then became valuable to others, which then we packaged into a workshop and shared our, essentially shared all of our, you know, ideas and the learnings that we, that we had. So there's that. And books are like that as well. What's interesting about that is it's sort of um, like a flywheel effect, if you will. So we start doing these workshops, which satisfy a demand for our experience building the SaaS thing, right? That ends up building more of an audience. Um, we ran quite a few of these workshops. Uh, those people, in some cases, became even more interested in what we had to say, which cultivated a market for sort of a broader version of that, which sort of led to the books. And then by the time we'd done some of the books, we had 
cultivated a broader audience. Right. Who weren't necessarily directly interested in the, the products, but were interested in our experiences building things because they were trying to build something else. Now we had an audience. The audience in itself turned out to be a bit of a, of a byproduct that we could then sell things like a, a job board to. Right now, now you have an audience of people in the industry that those people are highly sought after for employment by a bunch of companies. A lot of these things kind of like can just keep on going. You, you can have the byproduct of your byproduct of your byproduct. Right. And all along the way, there's ways of, of breaking this down more finely and, and turning this into something else. And, and that these things then feed together back into the original idea. Hey, if we're running a job board and companies are advertising here, then applicants will go there. And then some might end up here who didn't, haven't even heard of 37 signals. They just go to job board because like they're looking for a job. And then we introduce them to the books and maybe they want to get on a workshop. Oh, and maybe they learn about the product and they sign up for that too. So that you have this flywheel effect where all the things you're doing are helping all the other things you're doing. And they're all businesses. I mean, not all, but a lot of it is a business and you're doing it not just on sort of like, well, I think 20 years from now that will pay off nicely. Although we also did those things, but there was a practicality to it that I think really helped shore up the business and actually accelerated in certain ways. In the early days, that kind of money, like making 40 grand on a single day because you got 40 people to show up to pay you a thousand bucks and our expenses were our expenses weren't basically there. We were reusing, by the way, an office we had already sublet and we were just asking like, hey, could we, could we use it basically after hours or something? And, and then brought in catering, right? Yeah. Total expenses, what? 500 bucks. Right. And we made 40 grand off something, as Jason said, we already had. These experiences we've already lived. We weren't developing a complete curriculum from sort of thought scratch. Right. I remember uh, Jason and I would often sit like the day before um, we're doing a new version, like, all right, let's run through it. And then we could produce eight hours of material because this was stuff we already had inside us. Yeah. These were experiences we were basically relaying. Oh, this was a problem we faced. This was the solutions we looked at. This is what we think you should do. It was already there. And then the profit margin on that, 500 bucks worth of expenses, 40 grand worth of income, pretty good, right? Right. <laughs> so it actually mattered, right? In in Particularly in the beginning. Now, once you get at scale, certain things change somewhat, perhaps a little bit, but also not that much. You look at the rework, the book sold over half a million copies. We're still getting royalty checks that are like, that's a nice royalty check. Like they'll... If not pay for a meetup, then pay for a lot of meals and <laughs> meetups and so forth. So like, it can still be something that's that matters. Yeah. And to add to that, we still do this. So Shape Up, which is our latest book, which details our process for building software, mm-hmm. is something we've developed over you know 20 years of trial and error and figuring it out and figuring out a, a unique novel approach to doing this. We could have kept that to ourselves, but we wrote a book about it. And uh, we've put out some additional supporting materials about it and we continue to talk about it and we continue to do it and refine it and we answer emails about it and all those things. And um, Shape Up is free online to read. We don't even make anything off that because it's really more about like, let's just share this methodology. There is a paperback book that does cost something, but basically it's a, it costs essentially. But anyway, the point is, is that that stuff that we learned and practiced and sort of perfected, although it's not perfect. We put the time into into putting that out as well. And I think we'll, you know, we hope to continue to do those kinds of things as we as we move forward. I think that's a big part of 
what we've always done and, and how we do things. David and I have talked about getting back into doing more of that. I think we used to do more of that as a company yeah. where we'd share more of the behind the scenes stuff and decision making and why we did this and why we did that and code reviews and design reviews and stuff. And I'd like to get back into that at some point because it's fun to do. It's also just, it's educational for yourself. Whenever you have to explain something to someone else, right, you right. learn something and it's useful. Well, you know, it, it seems much more difficult, at least to me, to find these byproducts in the software world than let's say you're a lumber mill and you can see the, the physical byproducts everywhere. So do you have any sort of insight into how you search for and find those, those byproducts in a non-tangible environment like software? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that there's almost something, almost certainly something there. I mean, God, Rails is a great example of this, right? Maybe David could talk about that. But like Rails is really a byproduct of building Basecamp. And look what that byproduct has done. Now, it's not every day you're building a new programming framework <laughs> right. by building something else, but there, there's something. And at the very least, your experience is part of it. You get that every time. That's How free. can you not? Mm-hmm. So it's maybe nice to look there. It's close at hand and you have it. Maybe it's not valuable. Maybe it is, but it exists. And then it, it could be design approaches. It, it could be a, a framework for, you know, a CSS framework of some sort. It could be a new novel way to design something which you can then share with others and write up your story about. Yeah. I remember when we first did Basecamp, we had this really novel feature, which still exists all over the web called the yellow fade technique, which was whenever something changed on the page, this is in the early days of, of Ajax. So you could update something on the page without reloading the page, which was a novel, very novel idea early in the early days of web design. And the thing is, is that people didn't expect that. Most people expected the page to reload. So they expected to see something different when the page reload. But when you didn't have to reload the page and you just changed an item, like adding a new to-do or checking a to-do off, you had to highlight the fact that something happened. Right. So right. <laughs> we would highlight this. We'd blink this, the change yellow and fade it out to, to nothing, basically. That was a, something that we did. And you know, this is a cool technique. This is really useful. Let's write this up on our blog. And it became something that pretty much every other product used. And many of them still do. We didn't sell it, but we did it. There was something there. We sort of codified it by writing it up and sharing it and explaining why it's valuable. And then that helped make other people's products better, you know, that were unrelated to ours. Yeah. I think this will tie into Rails pretty well. It's not always about selling to make money. And as David was saying, a lot of this comes back into the later chapter of everything is marketing that these byproducts also uh, help the the main business. But uh, David, do you want to talk about the creation of Rails and uh, and what you did with that? Yeah, I think that is a great way of framing it. Like you're selling your your brand here. You're selling your some some goodwill, or, or you're buying some goodwill with these things you're you're putting out in the world. What I often look at is like, why would we not do it? Right. Right. Like all this stuff is there. It's just laying around. What do we get from keeping it secret? For example, Rails, I'd build all this stuff out that we needed to build Basecamp. And I was like, so let's say we don't open source it. What do we get? Is, is this sort of some secret business advantage that'll give us this huge, unique leverage that will then put all competitors out of business because they don't have it? Uh, maybe a little self-grandizing if, if I thought that was true, right? Like there were just other alternatives. This was a better way to do it and believed very strongly in it in all sorts of ways, but it wasn't like we had discovered 
some secret formula right. that was just going to completely annihilate the competition because they didn't have access to it. Or that it was something we really wanted to patent. Mm. Um, part of this is, I think, this whole idea of selling your byproducts, both whether you sell it for money or you sell it for brand awareness or, or whatever, comes to me naturally as a participant in the open source community. We share the cool stuff we find. We share the cool stuff we build. And like the world is better when that's how we approach work because I looked at all the things that I had gotten out of that, right? Like everyone else would shared all the open source that we couldn't have built Basecamp without open source. There's just no way. Yeah. There's no way that one individual on the technical side working at a small company that didn't have massive funds could have built SaaS without open source databases, without open source web servers, without open source programming languages. If we had to pay licenses for all this stuff, it would just never have happened. We would never have gotten off the ground. So there's that sense of it. But I think you also got to be careful not stretching the term sell too much. Like sometimes it's just sell. Hey, you have something that's valuable. And in fact, this idea of, for example, our experiences almost have a chance of having more of an impact because we have the confidence to sell it as a product. It's kind of like the same thing where a company knows what to do, but they have to buy a consultant to tell them what to do <laughs> because that gives them the permission to do the thing right. they wanted to do all along, right? right? It has some gravitas. A price gives something gravitas. This isn't just like free shit. I mean, there's also something to that, and I mean, we have all these other things. But I, th- I thought there's there's some there's an aesthetic that I really like about like, do you know what? This is a coherent body of work. If you take the workshops, the eight hours of material we put in there, they were fucking worth something. There were a bunch of people, and and I know this because I've heard from them, who walked away from those workshops, who had legitimately learned something that made it more likely that their business would succeed, that they would grow their business, that they would do something else. Where I'm like. Let's have a fair transaction here, right? Let's have a fair transaction that like we have some valuable experiences. We're putting some work into presenting those in a structured way that you can turn it into something that makes a difference in your your business. And you're going to pay us for that. Yeah. And that's how that should be. And that's fair. And it's better on both ends. It's better even for the person buying it in certain instances that this is not free because it creates this obligation that I actually should pay attention. I should listen. I should give it a go because otherwise I've wasted my my money and I don't want to do that. So sure, I'm in. Sure. Well, perfect. I think that's a, a pretty good place to stop. Um, we do have uh, another listener question if you want to tackle that. This one was sent in by Abner. Hi, I just wanted to ask about some of the principles or heuristics you might apply when pricing your products. Also, like, does this fall under the bucket of making the call quickly in order to unlock more progress or just deciding what your product costs? One of those rare exceptions that deserve, you know, extra deliberation. Thank you. Big fan of the podcast. Very timely question. (laughs) I know we were just talking about pricing last week, too. (laughs) We've been we've been talking about pricing. David and I and Elaine and a few other people here at at, uh, 37 Singles have been talking about pricing now for a few months because we have uh, some new ideas. So Basecamp basically been priced the same way for a number of years here, which is one plan, hundred bucks a month, unlimited users, unlimited projects, the whole thing. And we are ready to try something else. And so we're trying to figure out how to, how to do that. What is the thing? What is the other thing? How do we test it? Do we test it? 
who do we test it on? There's a lot of questions. I think pricing is probably one of those things that does demand more. Well, I guess it depends. You know, I should say it depends on the state of um, the business and the scale of your customer base. It depends on a lot of things. If you're just brand new, I would just go with something. And if you're just kind of still small and it's not really going to affect that many people, I would keep going with things. I wouldn't overthink some of this stuff. But at our scale now, we kind of have to. You know, we have thousands and thousands of people signing up every single week for Basecamp. You know, we have tens of thousands of paying customers. You know, we have the existing base. We've got new people. We've got people who don't know us at all. Tomorrow will be the first day they've heard of us. There'll be others who've heard of us for three months and been considering and contemplating and they have a price in mind in their own head and there's a lot to it. So I do think it has to do with timing and scale and also the 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 cost of change. So if we wanted to go to, let's say, a per seat model, like Basecamp is not built that way. Basecamp is currently built with unlimited users. So if we want to test per seat, it's not as simple as just putting a new price up on the website and changing some stuff in the back end. It's like revamping the product in some fundamental right. ways. So, right. you know, there's a lot to it. I, I guess my my instinct, though, in general is I'd rather just try something than sit on it for too long and not really know if it works or not. The only way you're going to actually know is by trying it. I don't think that you can really ask people if they'd be willing to pay X for Y. The only way to know for sure is to make them pay X for Y and see if they do it. See if they so sign that's up. my quick right. take. Right. I'd say one heuristic we used in the early days in particular was this, would I pay for it? Mm. Would I pull out my credit card if someone else was offering this product? And obviously you're biased. It's your own baby to some extent. But we've had products or pricing schemes for products that failed the test. We used to have um, a, a separate product. Well, the product still exists, but we don't sell it anymore, called Campfire, right. which was basically Slack 10 years before Slack. And the original pricing model we had in mind for that was a per-room model. Where you would <laughs> pay like a small sum, I think like five bucks or something, to start uh, a single chat room. And we thought of it like, hey, if you have a, a client, this would be a limited time chat room you'd have and you'd pay it on a, a single basis. And we got fairly far along with that idea until I guess we just thought about like, actually, would I put my credit card out to buy like a piece of software for five bucks as a one-off like this? And we're like, no, it wouldn't. Okay, we can't sell it. Yeah. If we don't want to buy it ourselves, we we can't sell it. So use that as that first gauge and trust that initial gut reaction that like you have that thing and then you want to rationalize it for why what you thought about actually works, but your gut will tell you whether that's true or not. And then as Jason says, it, particularly early on, it's pretty easy to test. This is not a permanent decision. Right. It becomes harder to change once you have, as we do, I mean, literally 20 years of legacy and a gazillion customers, and then there are more mechanics to it. But even then, it doesn't have to be that impossible. We had a phase, I think, shortly after becoming Basecamp in 2014, where we went like a year and a half, and I think we tested maybe like 12 different price points. <laughs> right. All sorts of different combinations. We were adding plans, we were removing plans, all sorts of stuff to find the optimal place to be. And what was interesting with that was those initial prices we had based just on our gut, right? Like, hey, will we pay? Does this seem reasonable? Does this seem fair? They were actually like kind of pretty good in the sense that there was a substantial amount of price elasticity. If we were changing the prices, we'd see a change in, in sign-ups and so on where you go like, huh, 
I thought it would have been easier, right? Like this was one of the things, like we've never tested these prices before and we walk in and we do a bunch of tests and I'm just expecting, here's a free 20% increase on the business, right? Like <laughs> it should be easy, right? Like low hanging fruit. And after I think like nine months or, or a year or something, we were like, huh, damn it. This wasn't as easy as we thought. <laughs> um, but then later when we uh, went to the single price, we did make a huge leap. Um, we did again test it before we announced it and so forth. And that at least... At the time and at the moment, it was quite clear, okay, that worked. Going to a single price that was substantially higher, at least at the moment, we made more money overall. But hey, you get to change your mind, particularly early on. Like how many customers do you have? You have a thousand customers, you have 10,000 customers. Oh man, life is easy Right. right. When, when that's your scale. You really get to just change the speedboat any minute you care for. Well, perfect. Oh, thank you, Abner. Uh, if anyone else out there has any questions for David or Jason, Leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850 or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to hello at rework.fm. And that will do it for this week's episode. Next week, we're talking about when to launch. And spoiler alert, it is early. And I hope to talk to both of you about that next week. For now, I want to say thank you, David Heinemeyer Hansen. Thanks, Sean. And thank you for joining me, Jason Fried. Thank you, Sean. We'll see you next week. Rework is a production of 37 Signals. Our theme music is by Clipart. We're on the web at rework.fm, where you can find show notes and transcripts for this and every episode of Rework. We're also on Twitter at Rework Podcast. If you're following along with the book, next week we'll be discussing the chapter Launch Now. And if you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you're listening to this. Bye.